Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. The Alberta government and Premier Danielle Smith has been making a big deal about expanding the Canadian LNG industry. And there really isn't an industry at this point. We've got a couple of plants, uh, one big one that's under construction and will be done in a couple of years. And and we have a couple of other smaller ones that uh, look like they're going to go ahead. But the industry and Alberta really, really want to see an expansion of LNG production in Canada largely to supply Europe and Asia Pacific. And that's the narrative. What's the counter narrative? What's the argument against? Because the argument for is not very clear. So I'm going to talk to Dr. Chris Bataille, who's an economist and economic modeler and someone I've interviewed many times before about energy modeling. So welcome to the interview, Chris. Hey, Mark. Nice to be here. I always enjoy our conversations because energy modeling is what you do, uh, and you bring a perspective that uh, is not, I don't commonly find, uh, in uh, in Canadian economists. And this particular issue, Chris, really bothers me because of the political capital is being spent on it. And one of my objections, because I know you do a lot of modeling on, you know, sort of the energy of the future, the twenty, what I call 21st century energy, clean it, clean electricity, high, uh, hydrogen, uh, sustainable aviation fuel, those sorts of things. But the problem with the LNG, based on natural gas, and it is a fuel of the 20th century and doesn't have appear to have a long-term future. So let's talk in the most general terms first, and then we'll get down into the specifics uh, of the Canada, Canadian situation. Give me the lay of the land right now around the LNG industry globally. No, it's a good, it's been evolved. The LNG industry has been evolving since the 1970s, and it started as dedicated contracts in the Middle East through to Japan, South Korea, what have you, because Japan has just historically been energy short. Um, you know, it, it's grown. It's, you know, and many watchers have been watching for many years, hoping it'll be, you know, it can take over some of the some of the supply of the of the oil industry. Um, moving in through the, the net zero energy transition, LNG probably has a global role in terms of, you know, providing chemical and natural gas for chemical feedstocks, doing some balancing of wind and solar uh, for regions that are utterly coal dependent because they have nothing else. It's an improvement. But if you are going to provide it, it needs to be in a low emissions fashion. So right from the well through to the boat, compression to get it on the boat, you know, getting it to to the target destination and then in, then to the end use. And all of that has to be done in the least leaky way possible, just because methane is a strong greenhouse gas. But there is a legitimate global picture for it, a le- le- legitimate global role for it. The question is how long? We don't know if it's going to be 10 years, 15, 20, 30 years. You know, it depends on how fast other sources 
resources come on? Well, the IEA can help us out here, the International Energy Agency, because in the World Energy Outlook 2022, it did some modeling. And so I have here figure 8.8, the, uh, the chart, and it has the three scenarios that the IEA uses. The S uh, steps, which is their most conservative scenario. Uh, APS, which is the announced policies, kind of, you know, if governments follow through on what they've already announced. And then net zero, uh, presumably by 2050. So what this graph shows uh, is that in the steps, uh, there is some growth between now and, and 2050. Uh, maybe I'm guessing here, looking at the chart, maybe about 20%. In the, AP, in the APS, there's it peaks at around 2030 and then drops by about a third. And in net zero, it drops by two thirds by 2050. Mm -hmm. So if I was looking at this and I'm Canada and, and in this industry already, there's already, and I know you'll give us some more details on this, a big surge in supply coming. Australia, Qatar, and the U.S. Uh, lead this industry. They've uh, got new supply. They've been investing in it uh, for a while. And Canada is at the back of the pack. So isn't this, uh, this doesn't seem to me to have a very good business case when you're the industry laggard, the industry looks like it's going to peak sometime in the 2030s, and these plants are 20, 30, 40, 50-year plants, investments, when you make them. I'm having a hard time figuring out Canada's competitive advantage here. It, this doesn't look like a good business case to me. What, to my mind, it's a highly risky business case, right? Because, you know, when the Ukrainian war hit and Russian supplies to Europe were cut off, you saw a surge in prices, people made a lot of money, what have you. But the present, you know, you can't count on wars for, for making a living. Some do, but hopefully it's not something business we want to get into. Uh, the there is a lot of supply coming, and that's just out of our control. And the amount of demand is highly variable. Now, if there's lots of demand and a fixed supply, you might see high prices. If there's not a lot of demand and this fixed supply coming on, the prices will be very low, and we're unlikely to see a lot of royalties and what have you. Meanwhile, as this is happening, we're paying the price in for providing it in Canada. So first of all, the, all the LNG projects, they're getting a cut on the carbon tax. They're getting a cut on the sales tax. They're asking for pay, the BC government to pay for all the transmission for the electricity to be provided. You know, we're putting out a lot here that this is a huge opportunity cost for the province in terms of lost tax revenue, the electricity that could have been put into vehicles, could have been put into other long-term industries that will be around for a long time. We could, you know, ultra low emissions manufacturing, ultra low emissions mines for lithium rare earths, what have you. We need to electrify those as well. And if it's in the LNG plants, it's not necessarily available. You know, you know, we've got CIC coming, but we're going to need a whole lot of other generations. So electricity, this clean electricity has an opportunity cost to it. So I would be wondering, you know, we've made these one or two commitments. I'd be wondering what's what's the rationale? Why are we going forward with more of these plans? Let's talk about the opportunity cost of capital, uh, public capital here, because the uh, oil sands industry in Alberta is asking for $50 billion 
to build carbon capture and storage for its operations. Uh, other parts of the oil and gas industry are, are asking for help to also to de decarbonize. Now the industry, so if we, if LNG were to expand and, and BC and the federal government had to put money into subsidizing those operations, this has an economist not sat down and thought and, and looked at that and said, well, here's the opportunity cost. And, and furthermore, if we were to put that into building hydrogen plants, or we were put it into sustainable aviation fuel plants or advanced material plants, or spend it on wind and solar. I mean, all of those to me sound like better investments than a, a sunset industry being propped up because there's a temporary spike in prices caused by the Russian invasion of Ukraine. That, that's kind of the way it looks to me. Well, no, there are a lot of economists that go through this. And, you know, the political calculus is if you can buy a few jobs in the short run, as opposed to lots of jobs in the long run, generally politics is going to lean to the few jobs in the short run, right? Like we, we you know, governments need to be involved in long run industrial planning, not running facilities, not running companies, what have you. That's the private sector's job, but setting a, a, a wide direction for the economy. And, you know, government money is often involved for infrastructure, for getting things going, making those big investments that the private sector, it's just too much for them to, but it should be things that are transformative, that they get the province to near net zero. Now, any any projections I've seen for these LNG plants is that they they help exceed like between the existing oil and gas industry whatever happens with it and these LNG plants that exceeds our provincial targets we we're they're just blown right they're but you're we're, talking we're, about emissions targets right yeah exactly and the it's questionable what are the long run I mean what are the long run benefits here for the province in terms of growing industries moving into the future so Ontario is making Ontario and the federal government is making a big move to get into elect the whole entire electric vehicle supply chain my question would be for Western Canada is what are what are the commodities that are going to be required in 2100 in a big way and it's not LNG it's going to be things like synthetic fuels and net zero synthetic fuels, feedstocks, what have you, um, all the, the things that we know we're going to need going forward beyond just electrified cars and buildings. Right. And, and blue hydrogen, which is uh, uh, hydrogen made, made with natural gas using the steam methane reforming process, uh, is now the most cost-effective way to make hydrogen. I think it's about two bucks a kilogram and and using electrolyzers to make green hydrogen is about six bucks a kilogram. So the betting is that the industry in Western Canada, particularly in, in BC and, and Alberta, will start with blue and then transition over time with green as you know yeah. the industry figures things out. So it seems to me then, if there's an alternative use for that natural gas getting into the hydrogen side which we know that hydrogen is going to be around in the in the in the economy for decades to come that seems to be a whole lot better use of of natural gas than using it to make lng which might be around for you know the might demand might peak in 10 years i my question i i you know 
the private sector has a, a role to play. The government has a role to play. Figuring out where the best investments, like the government sets the barrier, sets the, the guidepost. You've got to pass through these these doors, you know, like in terms of emissions, in terms of, you know, you got to pay your taxes, what have you. Let the private sector figure out what, you know, what things are the best events. Now, in terms of the, the gas, if you're going to use gas for anything, you've got to cover the entire bill for it. You've got to make sure that it's ultra low emissions coming out of the wells, you know, when it's transported, whatever it's trans transformed into, be it chemical feedstocks, um, be, be, it be it hydrogen for any one of a number of uses. But if you're going to do all that, you're going to make all that investment, it needs to be a high value product with a long term future. And that's, you know, the way I would be thinking of it as a business investment. Now, for our American and uh, and uh, well non-Canadian listeners, uh, we I guess we should point out that right now the nascent LNG industry uh, is located on the the west coast of Canada, in British Columbia, and there are two the two big uh, gas producing provinces are British Columbia, which makes about five billion cubic feet of gas per day, and then next door uh, west is Alberta which makes 10 billion cubic feet of, of gas a day. And they've got well-established infrastructure and, and markets uh, all over Canada and into the U.S. The, the system is basically integrated into the U.S. system. And so it's been around for a long time, for decades and decades. And so the question is, can there be incremental growth by, by growing this LNG? There, so far, there's a $40 billion uh, LNG Canada project, biggest capital project in Canadian history. And and it, it will probably be a phase two. The betting is from the gossip that I hear in the industry. There'll be there'll be a phase two to it. Okay, so that's basically the the lay of the land. Now, what are the competitive advantages that I see for BC? Is one, it's it's more northerly, so the the cost of making LNG is lower because it's cooler, you know, compared to like Louisiana or Texas or the Middle East. That's one. Uh, it's reasonably close to the Asia Pacific. So once you get it on a boat, your transportation costs aren't going to be all, all that much. But then there are some serious competitive disadvantages. Here in Canada, we, Indigenous consultation is built into the Constitution. That adds cost and, and time that the industry always complains about. Um, it's got the uh, And emissions are a problem. Now, that's something that you've done a fair amount of, of study on. Uh, mm -hmm. Give us a give us a take on uh, fugitive methane emissions in the BC Alberta natural gas industry. Yeah, to our industry's credit, the natural gas extraction industry and processing industries in British Columbia and Alberta are some of the lowest fugitive. They're not the lowest. The lowest the lowest ones are around the North Sea because they tend to be offshore platforms and they control for fire risk and what have you. And those are about 0.2 percent up to maybe 0.5 percent leakage. You know, BC's at probably 0.2 to 0.5 depending on the facility. Alberta is up around 1.1. Probably once we get all the measurement in place, it's maybe 1.7, maybe two. And this is a whole lot less than a lot of the facilities in the states, which, which can run seven, eight, ten percent leakage. Right. So we do have a, a decent regulatory regime in place. And with the new rules in place in BC, if those were copied across Canada, we could probably get our fugitives down below a half a percent from well to the to point of end use. So that's 
that's that's to our to our credit. However, if you're going to ship this stuff as LNG, it's got to make it from the wells in the northern part of the province. It has to get down all the pipes and it has to get to Kitimat, where it then needs to be compressed and compressed so that it's liquefiable and put on a ship and then shipped shipped to Asia. That compression takes a lot of energy. Right. And phase two was premised on it being, you know, they've got a license to do it using combusting natural gas to run the compressors to do this. But if they do that, they're going to add it. Basically, it's going to make making hitting BC's climate targets almost impossible. This is such a large industrial facility. Right. So the whole project was premised on the idea on the idealistic premise that it would all be electrified, including the, the processors. To do that, however, you've got to get an extra transmission line in from the main lines in the middle of the province to Kitimat. And then that the bill for that was put on the, on the, on the British Columbia government. They agreed to this. It hasn't been done yet. And because it hasn't been done, the planning's not advanced. Basically, LNG Canada saying it's going to go ahead with phase two, but with natural gas as the, as the compression fuel, right? Which will make our climate chart, will push our climate targets out of sight. Uh, you know, this this is this is the trade. These are the trade offs you get into when you agree to, agree to these commitments. Now, I see a very difficult thing happening where the BC government, okay, so says we'll get that electricity in there, we'll build the transmission line, but then that's going to consume a lot of our available clean electricity. And then what's left to electrify our transport fleet, to electrify all our buildings, to electrify all our light industry and service industries, which generate a whole lot more GDP than, than the resource sector. And there's another issue here, which is that there's one more hydro dam. Uh, and I should point out that that BCE's generating capacity is about 16,000 megawatts. And there's one more dam being built, Site C, highly controversial. Site C, it'll generate 1,100, it's generating capacity is 1,100 megawatts. And that's the last hydro dam BC will ever build. That they've, the, the utility BC Hydro has said that. And so uh, under the scenario that you just uh, painted, where there isn't enough electricity, you know, the LNG in uh, liquefaction plants suck all that electricity up. Where's the electricity going to come from? And that, and that is the trillion dollar question, to be honest, or that's, that's the future of British Columbia in a nutshell. Um, the province needs to increase generate clean generation by at least 50%, if not heading towards 100% to meet our needs up to 2050. Uh, we're not going to build more dams. We can add more turbines to some of the dams. We can run them better. Um, but most of that electricity is going to have to come probably from wind. Uh, you're going to need a whole, huge wind build out probably in the Peace region on the east side of the Rockies in the northeast part of the province. It needs to cook, connect in with the rest of the transmission system to get it down to the load centers in the lower mainland. That's all going to cost billions. And that's billions. You know, we have a limited federal, you know, provincial treasury to work with. And BC Hydro has limited borrowing capacity. Where should they be applying that capital expenditure first? Is it is it making right. sure the province is built out clean? Or is it making sure these plants can run these LNG plants can run clean? Well, let's talk about those two LNG plants, because it's been hugely controversial uh, that the Prime Minister Justin Trudeau at, at COP26 made the announcement that he was going to immediately implement an oil and gas emissions cap. And the government hasn't done that. It does, you know, it put in. It had a discussion paper in, I think, it was February or March of, of 2022, and now they say it's going to be in place by 2023. 
unless you give the LNG uh, the plants themselves an exemption exemption from the from the cap, then they should be captured by the cap, right? And you know, they should be in the cap. Yeah, sorry, finish what you're saying. Right, and so if that's the case, then you give them. <laughs> You don't fulfill, you were supposed, you, you make the agreement to electrify them. Then you don't fulfill the agreement. Both parties don't get, don't do that. You wind up and, and and then you put in a cap that penalizes the companies for this crazy decision that it just seems bizarre to me that we would approach industrial development like that uh, as if there was no forethought whatsoever. Uh, and I don't know. How do you, how do we resolve this contradiction, uh, Chris? It's a, it's an excellent question, and part of it is because we don't have a national we don't have a national system. It's when I say about to say planning, I don't mean Soviet style planning, but it's an allocation. Okay, this is how we're going to get to our targets and still make a living as a country. Like keep our our own energy system going, make do what exports we're going to do. You know. You know, if we were sitting on gobs of extra clean electricity, like we could, you know, in the Middle East, where you can put solar panels anywhere, electrifying an LNG plant is relatively cheap, right? It's not that cheap to electrify an LNG plant up here. We don't have, we can't put solar panels all over the place. Whatever extra wind that goes in, we're going to need that electricity for ourselves. We're effectively handing the electricity we were going to need for our own needs off to another jurisdiction so you know and that's going to make things very very tight going forward if this all goes ahead let's talk about a i mentioned in passing that in indigenous peoples in canada have the constitutional right to consult on these kinds of projects and the the pipeline that from northeastern bc where the mountainy mountainy formation where the gas will come from passes through a number of indigenous territories when it gets to the coast at kitimat and there's that was hugely problematic. I mean, the company did an excellent job of consulting with indigenous groups uh, and came in, you know, community benefited agreements mm -hmm. and labor training and all sorts of things. You know, it was kind of a model of, of its kind. And still there were there's it's a huge, hugely controversial issue and construction of the, the pipeline has been held up and there's been all sorts of trouble. Building another pipeline like that would be, I think, even more difficult. Every every pipeline, every pipeline is more difficult to build than the one that came before. Is about the situation we're in now, and I don't, I'm not sure that we could build another one like that. So, one more competitive disadvantage when you're thinking of expanding the LNG industry in in Canada, and you just mentioned. You know, like if you think of Texas and Louisiana, I mean, you don't have any problem getting a pipeline built from the Permian Basin out to the coast. Mm -hmm. You know, the Texas Railroad Commission would be more than happy, more than happy to give you the permit to build that. Not the case in Canada. We have a we have a rigorous, especially if the federal government gets involved, the Environmental uh, Assessment Act gets applied. It's a very rigorous and very time consuming process and i don't think we should you know I, the industry would like to gut it to fast track uh projects you know like more lng plants i don't think that's a good idea 
I, I would roll back this question a bit and, and st instead of looking at consultations with our First Nations as some sort of impediment or a cost, I, I think it's a huge advantage in the long haul because the joint sovereignty is real. They have real constitutional rights. And in consulting with people who live, who've lived there for a long time and have a long-term interest in the health of that of that space, you know, if you can get through that intact, you probably have a much more a much better project in the long haul than if you've just if you've gone through something. It's it's a short-run project. People are not as attached. There was a recent there was a lithium mine approved in on Cree territory in Quebec just recently. It was done in joint joint consultation with the Cree. It pro it happened faster and more cheaply than most of these processes that we've been going through on the West, but simply because the attitude going in and the process going in was, you know, they had veto from the start. You know, and because their their concerns were met right from the beginning, boom, 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 the process went through. The reason we're having so much trouble is that we're not acknowledging their their parts of the sovereignty here. We're not acknowledging their concerns, and the long term management of Western British Columbia and Alberta kind of hinges on doing this properly, right? And you know, if we want a healthy economy and environment and everything else out in 2100 and 2150, if you want to see the 300 year anniversary of Canada, the 400 year anniversary of Canada, we have to get into this practice. Okay, I'm not I'm not disputing that and and I'm fully in support of uh, partnership not just consultation, but partnership with Indigenous peoples. Been, have held that position for a couple of decades, in fact. Uh, risk for another conversation. But my point here is that the Coastal GasLink folks thought they had done that. Mm -hmm. And they still ran into big problems with the Wet'suwet'en. Uh, well, this is really complex. We haven't got time to go into it here. It, but... it's, it's got a lot of issues attached to it. And the thing is, you've, there's differing First Nations there. The Coastal First Nations were okay with it. The Wet'suwet'en were not. Right? right. They're not all in of the one interior. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Right. And and so that complexity is, is what I meant as a competitive disadvantage. So and and not I didn't mean to come off as being negative about it. So I, 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 I apologize to any of our indigenous listeners out there. That wasn't my intent. Just to point out that that doing things in Canada is a little more complex because of the way we do things. And there's a very good reason why we do those things the way we do. And and. As we go through this process, Chris, of discussing the various, you know, mm -hmm. competitive advantages, competitive disadvantages, I still don't see a strong business case for more LNG plants coming out of that conversation. Yeah, I, I if it were my, if it were my planning first process, I I would be dedicated. I would be focusing differently the peace oil and gas industry and the alberta oil and gas industry would be thinking about how they eliminate their emissions how they fit under that cap how they get to a space where they're making net zero chemicals and and jet and net zero aviation fuel and become world leaders and cost incredibly cost competitive at that using blue then green hydrogen what have you and i think that is the future of the oil that's the long-run future of the oil and gas industry where we keep that in play like that is that is just as much a part of it as electrical as buildings and cars and what have you. Um, but we're not thinking that way. The, the Canadian oil and gas industry is not dedicating large resources. There are pockets of it doing it, but most of it is not thinking in those terms. Okay. We, we have mentioned uh, blue hydrogen already, but I did an interview with you last year where you talked about the feasibility of making blue hydrogen, storing it underground, 
and then using it to to uh, basically, uh, you know, for in the power generating sector, converting existing gas plants. And because, you know, by 2030, uh, 30% of Alberta power will be supplied by gas. Okay. And it's locked in. It's so you could switch those turbines over and and run them on, on hydrogen so that, you know, during the day when when there's lots of cheap solar, uh, you're you're making hydrogen, you're storing it, then the sun goes down, and then you you pump the hydrogen into power plants, and now it's going to burn, it's going to burn hydrogen. And when you combine that with with hydrogen for long haul trucking, uh, hydrogen for industrial processes, hydrogen, just supplying Alberta hydrogen, yes, is a huge is a huge market opportunity. Yes, that seems to me to be a much better market opportunity for natural gas producers than chasing after this hard to make happen LNG projects on the on the west coast. Yeah, no, I agree. And the thing is if you wanted to use elect if you wanted to use provincial capital for transmission more effectively and both for BC and Alberta is you'd beef up the inner ties between the two provinces so they can build out as much sun and solar and wind as they want and we use the high, our, our our dams to offset them to firm their power. So both sides improve win out of that. Um, you start doing things like what you're describing where you use the big underground cavity available salt caverns what have you to store or, you know, gas and hydrogen to power, you know, you can basically require that all gas turbines going in are dual fuel, that it can swing from natural gas through to hydrogen back, they're designed to do that. And that's, that's, that's not, that's completely commercial technology today, you just have to specify that from the manufacturer ahead of time. Um, This is all doable with existing technology. This is all, you know, you know, we, instead of, talking about CCS, let's build some CCS, you know, let's actually do it for the things where it's highly effective and a cheap way and the cheap way to eliminate emissions and keep the chemicals, you know, the chemicals and fuels industry in business. Okay. So just to wrap up this conversation, uh, I, I, I maintain the argument that I started with, which is that there is not a strong business case for building out uh, more LNG on the West Coast. Now, would you agree or disagree? Just to sum up your your position, I, I think I think it's a highly uncertain business case. It could be it could go well and could go badly. Um, I would have instead liked to have seen it as part of a bigger move to make a net zero industrial port out of Prince Rupert with a lot of offshore wind, a lot of the electricity coming from, you know, let's bring some European technology and that, you know, 10 cent, five to 10 cent per kilowatt hour big turbines and get a lot of electricity that way instead of using Site C, instead of having to move it in from the piece and what have you. But there was very little of that vision, actually, none of that vision considered. You know, and thinking about, you know, Vancouver is packed. If we, you know, there is, we have no port space left here. If all the new port space needs to go in Prince Rupert, well, let's vision that as a net zero industrial cluster and zone where there's lots of employment and places to people to live and work and what have you, but do it clean and do it completely in consultation with the the local First Nations. And we haven't even begun this process. Right. And then LNG might or might not fit into that vision. Yeah. And it might be part of that or might not. Yeah. Okay, gotcha. So you're a little, uh, just a tiny bit more optimistic than I am, and I'm pessimistic uh, based based on what we've seen so far. Okay, well, Chris, always a pleasure chatting with you. Thank you very much for this. My pleasure. Anytime. Anytime.